How many of you are familiar with David from the Old Testament? Most of you? Heard of Goliath? You've heard of Goliath? David and Goliath? Good. We have a point of, we have a starting point. I'm not going to do the whole life of David, but we're just going to be looking at chapters 21 through 31 of 1 Samuel. And uh, you could begin, if you like, reading all of 1 Samuel. If you don't want to read all of 1 Samuel, you could begin at chapter 8 and uh, begin with the first king of Israel, of the tribes of Israel, and read about Saul, which is kind of the background of David. So this morning, I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction as we uh, start a, a series called Learning to Sing in the Desert. And I wasn't going to read a scripture because there's so much scripture to read uh, as background to what, I'm, what I want to talk about this morning from the life of David. But I will read one verse just to uh, create some suspense. It's verse 54 of chapter 17. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. Immediately edifying, I know. One of the things we're going to find, if you aren't aware, is that David sings. He's a psalmist. He's a poet. He puts his faith in the Lord into poetry, that is, into writing, and into song. In the 150 psalms, half of them are written by David. I hope you'll appreciate that. I don't know if you've ever tried to write poetry. I have a hunch that a lot of us do not really like poetry. But David was a poet, and he sang. He sang, if not with his lips, with his heart, in the expression of his faith in God. He sang in all circumstances, in all situations, in some of the craziest places he sang. And the question becomes, how did he do that? <laughs> you know, how is it he can sing in the desert? Sing unto the Lord in those desert places of life. That's what we want to find out. I think there are some cues, there are some insights about our relationship with God as we look at the life of David, not just when he's at the top, but so to speak, when he's at the bottom. And what's interesting is that in chapters 21 to 31, we find David in the desert, quite literally, the wilderness. And to me, that's striking, because David's an unlikely candidate to find himself in the desert. 
If you know the story of all of if you know the story of David at all, it begins in 1 Samuel chapter 16. David is chosen by God. He doesn't even know it. The prophet Samuel makes his way to Bethlehem, which is where David, his father, his brothers all lived. Not far from what we know as Jerusalem. And Samuel went to Bethlehem to offer sacrifice unto the Lord, but he asked Jesse and his family for a special audience because God had told Samuel, among the sons of Jesse, you're going to find my chosen one, the anointed one, the king the coming king, the future king, the king who would, in fact, take the place of King Saul. That's the starting point. David is anointed to be king. And then, the armies of the tribes of Israel are facing the Philistines, and they have a great champion in Goliath. And they're all frightened. David is just uh, taking lunch to his brothers when he observes what's going on. And in those conditions, he himself, this young boy, some speculate between 15 and 18. Any 15-year-olds, 16-year-olds here this morning? Don't diminish what you can do for God. He stood up to that giant and felled him, dropped him with his sling, just as he did when he faced wild animals that threatened the sheep that he was entrusted with shepherding. When he felled Goliath, Saul and the people rejoiced when they saw what happened. And Saul said to David, my boy, you're sticking with me. Not quite in those words. It was Hebrew. But he said, he said you're not going home. I've got a place for you in my palace, in my court. And David took up residence in the court of the king of Israel. More than that, the prince, the son of the king, Jonathan, approached David, took off his sword, his belt, gave him his bow, his robe, and embraced him which was a pretty big deal because not everybody had swords. The king not only honored David in this way, but he gave him his daughter. In other words, he said, David, you're part of the family. You're going to be my son-in-law. You're marrying in to my greatest graces. You can't go from zero to 60 any faster than David did 
And all along, we're told that this uh, young shepherd boy, who was not even invited to the party by his father, shepherding was menial work. David wasn't even given an invitation to meet the prophet Samuel. Samuel said, is everybody here? Because as he went down through the sons of Jesse, God kept whispering to Samuel, this is not the one, this is not the one, this is not the one. And Samuel said, is the circle complete? Is everyone here? We're not going to finish until the circle is complete. David was outside the circle. And when he came, Samuel recognized him as the one after God's own heart. And we're told again and again that God was with David. In fact, in chapter 18, verses 14 through 15, we're told that David achieved success in all he did. Why? Because God was with him. Success in all he did because God was with him. And just as suddenly, and this is the, this is the striking thing, everything crashes. Now just think about that. Reflect upon your own life. Some meteoric, some rocket-fast rise to heights you never imagined, and then all of a sudden it comes tumbling down. Saul is threatened by David. He fears David, and he wants to destroy David. David is confused. What have I done? More than once, he asks. What sin have I committed? How have I wronged King Saul? Without an answer. Without an explanation. He can't figure it out. And has God abandoned David? Is God no longer with David? David will flee the king's court. He will flee, run. He has to escape with the help of Saul's daughter, Michal. He will not only flee the king's court, he will flee the land of his people, the land of King Saul and his people. So he's not only leaving Visalia, 
He's leaving California. He's going to Mexico. David becomes an outlaw. He's on the lam. He, he's on the run. He's a fugitive of justice, of the king's law and wrath. And he will literally live in the desert. It is thought, and it's very hard to calculate with precision, but it's thought that David was in the court of King Saul some seven years, and on the run and in the desert, in the wilderness, for some eight years. Think about that. What's that do to your faith? We can sing when we're on top. Can we sing when we're not? We should see reflections of ourselves. Because what is happening to David is a formula for fear. And fear can silence your song of faith. Fear can immobilize you. Fear can make you run. Fear can exercise your faith or exorcise your faith. It can cause you to develop your faith or it can drive it from you. Whom you fear makes a difference because fear can ruin everything. I just hit the wrong button, Kathy. Can you advance up for me? There we go. Fear can ruin everything, or fear can fix everything. It depends. Saul fears people. David fears God. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, we read, the fear of people, the fear of man, lays a snare. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. In fact, the expression is to be set high, that is set on high ground in a safe place. It's a proverb. It's a principle because it bears a timeless truth. And we can discover and make that truth for ourselves. It's a timeless truth because if we begin to inspect our lives, we'll find that we're either fearing man or people or fearing God, trusting God. And that will be the oscillation of our lives. Fear can ruin everything if we fear people. That is the story of Saul's demise. He fears people. David fears God. And that is the story of his rise. Whom you serve defines your fear.
Saul's great flaw is fear. It's his kryptonite. Why is Saul afraid? One reason. Pride. He is a very prideful man. No one and no thing matters to Saul more than Saul. No one and no thing matters more to Saul than Saul. Saul feared lots of things. Lots of things threatened Saul. His greatest fears grow out of his highest concerns for himself. It's been said that if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Saul stands for himself. But he falls because he's not big enough or strong enough to control circumstances and situations beyond his control. And when they threaten his life, it runs deep to the core of his being. And he's fickle. He's wishy-washy. He can't stand for things. He can't make decisions. He relies on a majority or he relies on Samuel. He's constantly looking to others for direction, for encouragement, for comfort, for strength. Because he doesn't have any timeless truths in his life to truly direct him. He doesn't have any principles in his life. If you're a people pleaser, you'll understand the nature of Saul. The writer of 1 Samuel wants us to know this. Saul is fearful because he has too low a view of God. And if you have too low a view of God, you will not trust Him. You will not fear Him in the sense of finding in Him your priority for, for life, your first place, your go-to. He'll be down the line in your thoughts and consideration. A third and a fourth memory. Perhaps it will take someone else to say, turn to the Lord, trust Him. I know what that's like because as a pastor, I'm often, for people, they turn to me as a last resort. What does that tell you about the place of God in their priorities of life? Let's just take one example of Saul's life. Turn to chapter 15, and let's look at verse 17. This is what Samuel, the prophet Samuel, says to Saul. Though you are little 
in your own eyes. Samuel recognizes it. He says, Saul, you're small in your own eyes. I can't make you big enough. God can't even make you big enough for the things that he's calling you to do. Because you're small, you're little in your own eyes. Are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Wow. Saul, who has God called you to be? Who are you, Saul, in God's eyes? Who do the tribes of Israel look to, Saul? You are the head of the tribes of Israel. And then he says, Saul, the Lord anointed you king over Israel. God has put his stamp on you. You are his person. You're his man. Have you forgotten that? Have you lost sight of that? Does that not matter to you? Samuel saying to Saul, act like a king in spite of your low self-estimate. And what does Saul say? I feared the people and obeyed their voice. I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. And that's what got them into the mess that Samuel is trying to pull Saul out of. Look at verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. In other words, he had guidance. God and Samuel told Saul what he needed to do. Sometimes in my own life, I just say, Lord, just make clear to me what I need to do. Well, Saul had that. But he didn't do it. And now he says, I blew it. I've, I've sinned. I've transgressed. Why, Saul? Why did you do that? He tells us, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, Saul says, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. In other words, Saul's saying, preserve my honor before the people. I want you to go with me because when you're at my side, the people have respect for me. They know I'm God's man. And then look at verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned, yet, note this, honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Interesting. How do we overcome fear? Well, one thing we do is we pick a fear that is greater than ourselves. 
fear that is greater than our fears. David could sing in the desert because he feared one only, and that was God. That gave him strength and courage to face down threats to himself. And for that reason, he had courage. Courage conquers fears. It's been said that courage is knowing what not to fear. Of course, we're certainly, I, I think, familiar with these words. Courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. That's the great philosopher John Wayne. Some of you know who John Wayne is. But he was a cowboy in a lot of movies. That's why he says, fear is being scared to death and saddling up your horse anyway. I used to be scared to death. I still, I still am afraid. But I have a greater fear, the Lord. And that's a good fear. That's a resourceful fear. It's a fear that brings confidence, a fear, a fear that produces trust. Back in 1973, I felt God was calling me into ministry. And so I went through a process in the church where I was a member. I was very young in the faith, maybe not even a year. But boy, I had already developed strong convictions about living for the Lord and putting Him first. And I felt this call to ministry, and so I wanted to get into an intern program that they had at the church. And I went through a series of applications and interviews and self-evaluation. And finally, I got to the pastor of the church, the senior pastor, which was kind of like Dorothy and the tin man and the straw man and the and the lion going before the Wizard of Oz. I mean, it was, and I was ushered into his office, and there he was sitting behind his desk, and he was much friendlier than I expected. He was really quite affable. But toward the end, after confirming that I would be brought into the intern program and saying some nice things about him, I was surprised he even knew who I was. He said this to me. He said, uh, I, I just got to tell you one thing, he says, and these are his exact words, you're going to have to toughen up. You're going to have to toughen up. Oh, okay, I will. But I went away thinking, how do I do that? How do I get tougher? I can't be like Bill Yeager. That's not me. How do I get tougher? Well, as the Lord worked in my life and as years passed, he came to work for me when I was at Western, and then when I came here, he was here with me and served alongside me, which was totally weird. I kept calling him pastor. He'd say, John, you got to just call me Bill. That I could not do. But I'll never forget, right over there in the office where... It's being revamped now into a junior high room. Bill stopped me at the door as we were going out of the office one day, and he turned to me. It was just the two of us. He says, you know, you're tough. You're a lot tougher than you seem. Those were the sweetest words. Took years. 
But I was tougher before that. He just didn't have a chance to see God working in my life. But I want you to understand how you get tough, how you get tough in all the right ways and not the wrong ways. Because toughness comes not from ego, not from trying to be tough. Tough, if you will, courage, comes not from ego, but from principles. Now, if you don't remember anything else I say today, remember that. Write that down. You don't become a strong leader. You do not become a strong wife, strong husband for the Lord, strong co-worker, strong anything in Jesus Christ. It's not through ego. It's not trying to play tough or to be something you're not. It's about having these principles of the Lord. It's having his heart in your heart, the heart of the Lion of God in your heart. Now, this is not about memorizing an array of principles, although you could do that. Let me just give you the one that was always on the lips and the heart of Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, we could have that embroidered and put on the wall. We could write it out and put it on the refrigerator. But if you begin to live that in your life, not just on Sundays, not just here, not just when you're at a church event, but in your relationships at home, as parents with children or children with parents at school, wherever you are, you're going to fail, you're going to fall short. But if that becomes the aspiration of your life, you're going to learn a lot about God. You're going to learn a lot about his heart. His love is not wishy-washy. His lo- if you are loving as God has loved you in Jesus Christ and you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you cannot sin. And it will drive out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. If you are loving like that, you will seek to fulfill justice. If you love your neighbor as yourself, that is justice. That's the most fundamental law of life. That is equity. equity. And you'll put the Lord first. And you'll love that neighbor that difficult person in a way that you wouldn't have treated them or thought about them. You'll think about them differently. You'll see them differently because of God taking first place in your heart. His love informing your love. It wasn't just Jesus, but it was Paul, it was Peter, and it was John and James too. Now, that just about gives you the panoply of writers of the New Testament, and they all say, if you do this, you'll fulfill the law and the prophets. I can't tell you how many times I've heard over the years the words, if I only knew what God wanted me to do. Well, there you have it. And there isn't a place or a time or a situation that it will not inform you in your faith and your life for Jesus Christ. 
I'm not tough. I'm still frightened, but I know where to go, and I know what to do. And it always begins with loving him and loving my neighbor as myself. If you figure out what's right before the Lord and do it, and you do it in love, by the way, 1 John 4.18 says, there is no fear in love, in God's love. And perfect love casts out fear. I can't tell you the number of times that I've done things that I didn't want to do, that I wasn't sure would work, that were things God, in his word, emulate, exemplified by Jesus, that I stepped out and did in love. And I only had the courage and the strength because of the principle and the belief in God behind that principle, that timeless truth and what God wanted me to do. It's not about getting what you want, but what the Lord wants. And if you'll do that, you will grow in trust and you will get tough in a good way, you know. You won't get pushed around. You might let people push you around, but you do it out of love. Yeah. You'll take maybe the back seat. But there'll be a purpose, a bigger agenda than yourself. You'll stand for values and principles. You may not get nasty about it. You may not call the other person or the situation names. You may not backtalk or gossip. But you'll stand for those things. Saul couldn't do that. David could sing in the desert because he feared God only, and God was his light, his salvation, and his stronghold. Turn to chapter 27 of the Psalms. We're going to have to move fast here. Maybe I should just do two messages out of this. Let's look at Psalm 27. Here's, what it, here's how it begins. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Now what's interesting about this psalm, and not everybody agrees, it's pretty hard sometimes unless the title of the psalm, the superscription of the psalm, tells us exactly what's going on. This is a psalm of David, but we don't have any clues as to the situation from a title or superscription, but there are clues within the psalm, distinct clues that position this psalm around the events of 1 Samuel 21, when, Saul, when uh, David fled Saul to the hill of Nob, and we'll get to that. But if that's the case, and I believe it is, David, in the midst of this situation, is saying, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my stronghold. He's my castle. He's my bulwark. He's my refuge. He's my safe place. We don't see that in 1 Samuel, but David's able to sing in the desert. And we can too. I don't know what your fear is this morning. Did you notice 
David says in Psalm 27, 1, Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? If the Lord is your light, your salvation, your stronghold, whom shall you fear? That's a question that we should ask ourselves. A lot of people are seized by fears, and they're not even aware that they're being influenced by fear. Ask yourself, whom do I fear? What am I afraid of? Even if it's green potatoes, green mashed potatoes, or something that doesn't look right, let alone ISIS, terrorism, changes in our culture. Fear of other people, people who aren't like you because of their color or their beliefs or their clothing or their sexuality. Whom shall I fear? If you can bring that fear down, I'm afraid of a friend who's gossiping about me things that aren't exactly true. I don't wa- I, I'm afraid of what others may think of me. I'm afraid of a rumor. I'm afraid of my guilt. I'm afraid of a sin that's hidden. I'm just afraid all the time because I'm far from the Lord today. Today, I came here. But here or wherever I go, I'm in the desert because I'm spiritually dry and empty. God is not close to me because I've just been drifting away from Him. I've been sucked into the culture, sucked into the belief systems and philosophies of things. I don't know what your fear is this morning, but with David, you can sing in your desert. You can know trust in God. And you can make a difference in your situation. You may not be able to control everything that's going on or everything you're afraid of, but you can control your faith. Did you know that? You may not be able to control what's going on around you, but you can control your faith. What you will put your faith into, will you put it into the Lord? Will you put your trust in Him? Will you choose to see the world through His eyes, the threats, or whatever's going on, and will you choose to love Him and your neighbor as yourself? If you'll start there and begin to act in a way that corresponds with the heart of God, you will find that God will do things in your life and take you places that you never imagined, and you will not know this fear that grips you and controls you and keeps you awake at night and turns your world upside down. That's how we learn 
to sing in the desert. Will you stand with me? Now, if you're intrigued, I hope you'll come next Sunday because I'll get to verse 54. (laughs) And you'll want to hear it because that's a pretty crazy verse, don't you think? (laughs) This morning, I've tried to open you to the voice of God, to the moving of His Spirit. Tried to share some of my own insights from my walk with the Lord. But there are no shortcuts. It begins with the disposition of surrendering to Him and letting Him be Lord of your life whether that's to intercede for another or to pray for yourself or to commit a challenge that you're facing and submit it to God's guidance and direction, whatever the need that is on your heart this morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ this morning, start there. And if you know Jesus Christ, then come to him this morning. I'm going to close in prayer, but I'm going to be here along with pastors, our elders, and their spouses. If you would like to pray with me or them this morning about what God has begun to speak to you about, we pray you'll come. Heavenly Father, thank you. Your word speaks so clearly to us in so many ways, so directly. We know you're the one. And all of our refreshment, as we sang earlier, all of our fountains are in you. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit, even now. And may we walk with you, not in fear, but in trust. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, God bless you.